All right, good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Uh, I see some new people out there. I'm not going to point you out or anything, but just wanted to let you know this is Zoe Church, not the Methodist Church. Some people get confused, and uh, I disappoint them. Uh, but my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors of Zoe Church. Uh, we want to welcome you. If you've been around for a little while and I still haven't met you, I'd be happy to meet you. I'm going to try to stick around afterwards. We have connections and coffee. It's something we do every once in a while where the elders of the church, the pastors, kind of just hang out and there's coffee and you can connect. I guess that's kind of the idea there. Um, so stick around for that. Hopefully we can meet you. Um, we're continuing our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, if you want to turn there. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So we're pretty early on in the series. Uh, if you're new, you haven't missed a whole bunch. Basically, Ecclesiastes is a sermon. Okay, the author is the preacher. And he is giving his wisdom, his, his thoughts from his experience, and, and even the wisdom that he has received from God himself. And basically, what he has said so far is that everything is vanity. The Hebrew word is hevel, H-E-V-E-L. It's a major word in Ecclesiastes. And what it means literally in Hebrew is vapor or smoke. Okay, that's what uh, we translate as vanity. It's something that is fleeting. Something where you try to reach out and grab it and, and there's no substance there. Something that dissipates. Something that you just can't build your life upon. And basically what the preacher has said so far is because everything is vanity, basically pretty much everything is pointless. Doesn't matter. That's what we saw last week when Pastor James preached. What's the point of being smart? What's the point of learning? What's the point of knowledge and wisdom even? The preacher set his heart to know everything he could know, to find everything out, and all it brought was vexation and sorrow, he said. Knowledge might be power, but knowledge is for sure pain. And that was just last week. Uh, we have uh, more levels to descend into. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll pray and then we'll get into it. Let me read. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Verse six, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had gathered, uh, who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing, nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. We come before your holy word. And what we read is... Maybe not exactly what we are expecting when we come before the scripture. Ecclesiastes is a book that is different in so many ways than the other books of your word, and yet it is just as inspired. It speaks just as much truth. And really, it's a necessary book, I think, for where we are, for who we are. God, all of us here, We want certain things. We hunger and we thirst. God, we seek and pursue after happiness. 
in all these different ways, some good ways, some bad. And as we come to Ecclesiastes, we see that the preacher did the same thing, wanted the same thing, searched in the same places, and found them empty. And I pray, God, that as we look to his experience and to what your word says, God, that you would help us to see that maybe some of the things we're living for aren't good and that we need to go a different way. God, ultimately, only you can change our hearts. Only you can transform our minds, God. So I pray that you would help me to be faithful. I pray, God, that you would use your word to do what only it can do, to do a work in every single heart in this room. I look to you, God. I pray that Christ ultimately will be exalted. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wanted to escape? Lillian did. I read a story about someone named Lillian recently. Before she even fully realized what was happening or what she was doing, she had already taken several steps down the path toward destroying her entire life. Her husband, Keith, was gone or going away on a work trip, and Keith was stable, right? Keith was safe. Keith was boring, in other words, and his Volvo was barely his Volvo. His Volvo was barely out of the driveway when Lillian left the house and went to work to meet her younger coworker, Jimmy. And she wasn't going to work. She was going to meet Jimmy. He was 15 years younger than her, and Jimmy was totally different than Keith. Okay, Jimmy was a little wild. He was rough around the edges. Jimmy thought that Lillian was funny. And that was nice. Now, okay, if you've been around the block, you know kind of where this is going. You can see where this is heading. And I'll spare you the sordid details, but Lillian left Keith, or rather she left Keith a little bit. And then when Keith found out about Jimmy, he left her a lot. He left her behind. And the thing with Jimmy didn't amount to anything, so Lillian ended up alone. And looking back, the thing was, it wasn't even that she wanted Jimmy so much as she wanted the idea of him. That's what she was chasing for a moment. Something different, something exciting, something to escape from her boring, mundane, ordinary life. Now, have you ever wanted to escape And, okay, I know we hit the ground running here. It's not always adultery or something so serious that it ruins your entire life. You just blow the old life up, step into the new one. But sometimes it is. Sometimes, you know, you're stressed one day and you drink a little bit uh, at night just to take the edge off. You're just by yourself. And then you're stressed the next day. You drink a little bit more. And then soon after, you know, a couple of weeks, you need a drink whenever you feel even a hint of stress. Or maybe you're busy and anxious and the sheer number of responsibilities you have keep piling up. And instead of tackling them, it's just so overwhelming, you just try to escape. You procrastinate, you you go to your phone, you you turn on the TV, you binge watch a show, anything. You doom scroll on social media, anything just to feel good because to look at that pile of work is just so stressful. And that's just it. It's about feeling good. Maybe it's not necessarily that you're trying to escape stress or pain or anxiety. You're just trying to escape the mundaneness of your life. Why? Because you just don't enjoy really how things are going. It's not exciting enough. It's not fun enough. It's not interesting enough. It's not fulfilling enough. It's just not enough. So many people are chasing something, anything really, to feel better. It's the same desire that drives one couple to obsess over remodeling their home, right? First, we're going to do the kitchen, and then you do that. Okay, next we're going to do the bathroom, and then the bedrooms, and then we're going to sell the house and buy a new one. Same desire in the person who changes jobs every few months because, you know, this job really wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I don't really enjoy it. Maybe the next job will be better. Same desire in the person who compulsively picks up their phone to get that dopamine hit, another notification. And I preach to myself. It's all a desire to escape, to feel good. Can you see the ways that this shows up in your own life? Can you see the ways this shows up big and small in your life where you just want to do anything just to feel a little bit better than baseline? At the heart of this desire, I think, is an unwillingness to accept things as they really are. You just don't want to keep living your life. 
And this is what we see in Ecclesiastes, at least what we've seen so far. Ecclesiastes has been called a depressing book. I talked about that in the first week. But as we saw in chapter 1, it's not so much a depressing book as it is an honest book. It's a book that just looks at things as they really are. It's a book of reality. And the reality is hard to, to bear. It's cold. It's harsh sometimes. No matter what you do, it doesn't seem like anything truly changes. You go from this to this to that to that, and you're still just as unhappy with yourself. The sun rises and the sun also sets on each generation. People are born and they die, and then they're forgotten. And the preacher says, over all of it, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. If you just step back and think about things, nothing really matters, so what's the point? But understand that the preacher isn't trying to make us sad. The preacher is actually trying to save us. He's trying to save us from wasting our lives on things that won't matter in the end, that won't satisfy us. He doesn't want us to go hiking down the wrong trail only to find out too late that it leads to a dead end. I mean, who goes hiking anyway? The preacher understands the very human desire to want to feel good, to want to escape. But ultimately, he wants us to see that there's something more. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to look at this text in three parts. Let's get into Ecclesiastes 2. We're going to look at it in three points. First, the pursuit. Okay, the pursuit, which is about the thing that we all seek. Okay, the thing that every human being seeks. Verse 1. I said in my heart, come now. Come now. The word here in Hebrew, the, the, the term has to do with movement. Okay, it has to do with literally going from one place to another. Let's go. Let's move on. Now, move on from what? We'll go back to chapter 1. And let's look at the context. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.13. He said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And then look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I mean, hear those words back to back. Unhappy business, vexation, sorrow. The preacher is saying when you think about life too much, it only leads to more misery. It's why staying informed by watching the news constantly only makes you more depressed. It ruins your mental health. It's why growing up is difficult. Pastor James talked about this last week. The more you grow, the more you know, and the more you know, the sadder you get. Right? You experience your first heartbreak. You have a friend betray you. You learn what it's like to have a loved one pass away. You know what it's like to fail at something. The preacher found that for all his wisdom and learning and experiences, he only felt worse and worse and worse in the end. So he said to his heart after his foray into knowledge and wisdom. Let's move on. Obviously, this path doesn't lead to where I want to go, so let's go a totally different way. After considering wisdom and knowledge and thinking, and when it didn't make him feel better, he decided why not just go straight to the source and go to things that directly make you feel something. If you look at verse 1, he says, come now, I will test you with what? With pleasure. With pleasure, enjoy yourself. He's talking to his own heart. But behold, this also was vanity. So he's going to basically test everything good that life has to offer. Every pleasure under the sun. He's going to try everything and anything that feels good. And if you remember last week too, Pastor James was talking about this thing that he did. I didn't even, even know he did it, where he signed up for all these like random classes. Do you remember that? Were you guys here last week? He, he went to all these random different sub, he wanted to learn different things at, at college. So he went to like a literature class and like a chemistry class and like a math class, nine to five with no breaks. When I was listening to it, I was like, that is truly vanity. Um, but Solomon, the preacher, Basically, what he's doing here is the same thing, okay? Except for actually fun. Okay, so what he's doing here is he's actually going to go to every experience that you can ever go to. He's going to buy everything you could ever buy, so to speak. He's going to try everything. Now, there are two words he uses, pleasure and enjoy. And we need to break these down real quick. The word for pleasure here is the Hebrew word simha. And it actually can be translated as happy or joy. It can be translated as pleasure, as the ESV does. And, you know, the real idea here, I think, is 
uh, a little hard to grasp, but I'll try to explain. Okay, the real idea here behind pleasure, this word for pleasure, is enjoyment. Okay, things that just feel good. Things that you can kind of enjoy. Like, wow, I kind of like that. That's the idea here. See, for us today, if I say pleasure, I think in church, pleasure kind of has a negative connotation a little bit. A lot of people associate pleasure with lust or things like that. And then if you say joy, I think joy has a really positive connotation in the church. It's something that is lasting, a fruit of the Spirit, right? Joy is something God gives. But he's not really being positive or negative here. Really what he's doing is he's being general. He's saying anything that feels good. It could be good. It could be bad. Anything that in the moment is enjoyable. And then he says, enjoy yourself. And in the Hebrew, it's not redundant. Literally, it reads, see what is good. He says in his heart, see what is good. And in the Hebrew, and to the Hebrew mind, there's an idiom, when you see something, you experience it. So when people talk about, you know, seeing death, they talk about dying. You know, the person who believes in Christ will never see death. They will never die. It's about experiencing that thing. So to see what's good, it's to live it up. It's to experience things that are good. Does that make sense? Now, the word for good here is the generic Hebrew word tov. You might have heard mazel tov, things like that same word. T-O-V, tov. And where does this word first show up in the Bible? It shows up in the creation. When God made everything and it was good, it was tov. In Eden, in other words. The preacher's search, okay, if you understand, if you break down what the words are, he just wants to feel good, and he's going to look for any kind of vestiges of Eden that he can find. God created this world. There are things that look good, that taste good, that sound good. I'm just going to try it all. And you know, we were made for a world that was good. That's what the Bible says, where life was enjoyable and we were happy. The preacher is going to do everything in his power to try to capture some of that again. So here's the first thing to understand. The preacher is pursuing enjoyment. And this pursuit is not really wrong in of itself. In fact, if you search and study the scriptures, the pursuit of happiness is actually what we were made for in a sense. We were made for a world where everything was enjoyable. God said to Adam and Eve, everything in this garden, except for one thing, but everything in this garden is for you to enjoy. Everything is good. Solomon, the preacher, is going to try to recapture this. And really, this is what we all want. We all want happiness. We're hardwired for it. We were made for an environment called Eden. So here's the question as we follow Solomon on his quest. Where do we find this? Where can we find this? You know, it's funny that, you know, when you talk to people, happiness is so subjective. You know what I mean? Like I, I saw one of my friends the other day. I haven't seen him in a while. And he has two young sons. And he was telling me that he was going to take his sons to Disneyland on a trip. He doesn't live close to Disneyland. They were going to actually like fly out there or something, go to Disneyland and go on this trip. Um, but he kept on using the singular, like, I'm going to do it. Now, he's not a single father. He has a wife. So I'm like, oh, like, uh, so what? So your family's going. He's like, no, only I'm going because uh, my wife, she hates Disneyland. Right, happiest place on earth. For her, it's the unhappiest place on earth. The way that I will bless her and love her is I will leave her at home. And she can do whatever she wants, and I'll take the kids to, to Disneyland. It was a little strange, but I just said, I'll pray for your marriage. Now, I have another friend who loves Disneyland. And he really does believe that it's the happiest place on earth. He's like early, uh, up early in the morning, whistling and making breakfast, about to embark on this adventure. And I was just thinking about my two friends and how even if the place is called the happiest place, people just have different viewpoints. We're different. And yet the pursuit is the same. For one of my friends, he wants to go to Disneyland. He likes theme parks, I guess. He likes to meet Mickey or whatever he likes to do over there. My other friend, he doesn't necessarily like Disneyland, but he likes his kids and he wants them to have fun. And then his wife, her idea of happiness is to stay as far away from Walt Disney as possible. Blaise Pascal, the genius mathematician and philosopher and Christian, once made this observation. Listen to this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. 
Where's the lie in what he said? Even people who hang themselves, they do it because they feel like it'll be an escape from the misery of their lives. Everyone is taking steps in whatever direction they think they can find happiness. We all want to be happy. And most of us are not as happy as we'd like to be. Let's be real. If someone told you that they had the secret to happiness, you'd probably be excited for a second and then realize they're probably selling you something and you turn away. And you wouldn't be wrong. In fact, I was reading a book about Ecclesiastes, a commentary of sorts, and the author brought up these old commercials. Um, you might remember them. I had no idea what these were, but they were commercials for Hamlet cigars. Okay, so I don't know. I don't smoke. I'm a Christian. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I had no idea what this was, so I looked it up on YouTube, and each commercial follows a similar path, a similar path. All right, so someone is trying to do something in life and they're failing miserably. Like their life is going terrible. So I saw one where a guy's trying to take a photo of himself in a photo booth and he can't get his hair right and then the timing's off and he's like wasting his money. And then I saw another one where a guy went on a date, but then he got like got like water on his shirt and then when he tried to like get the water off, he like spilled something else and then he like fell down or something. He got like stabbed by the knife. It's very over the top. People are getting like, uh they're having the worst time ever and then at the very end, no matter how injured or humiliated or whatever, uh, the person, uh, however they are at the end of the commercial, uh, he or she lights up a cigar, okay, and starts smoking and the tagline appears, happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. And I was like, wow, I didn't know it was that simple. See, every commercial is selling us happiness. That's what I thought when I watched it. Every single commercial Southwest, want to get away? It's all the same thing. Buy this, you'll be happy. Vacation here, you'll be happy. Take this medicine, you'll be happy. Or at least you'll feel better. Have you ever seen a commercial for fast food where you're like really hungry and you see that commercial and you know it's not going to be that good, but when you see like, I don't know, the Burger King or whatever, uh, it just looks so good in the moment. Like, I think I want to get some of that. This is really what the preacher is getting at. I'm going to look and go for everything that just looks so good. Even if it might be a lie, even if it might be bad, if it looks good, I'm going for it. You know, when I was a kid, I remember we used to conduct this thought experiment on the playground. We were uh, young scholars and philosophers, um, but really, no, what we would ask is, if you found a magic lamp and a genie came out and asked you for three wishes, what would you wish for? What would you wish for? Now, I know someone's going to be like, do you guys believe in magic at your church? I don't, okay? It's just something we were talking about. But really for us, it was an opportunity for our unbridled imaginations to run wild by our unbridled materialistic appetites, really. We would just imagine, we would dream of all these things we wanted, infinite video games, right? We wanted infinite quarters to play at the arcade, all-you-can-eat pizza, no school ever again. Go back to the playground with me for a moment. If I was asking you this question, and I know it's fictional, but just as a thought experiment, humor me. If I asked you this, if you found a genie and he gave you three wishes, what would you wish for? What would you wish for? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What would you wish for? What are three things right now, as unrealistic or realistic as they can get, that you'd wish for if you could? Like if there are three ways that you can make your life better instantly right now, three things that you could get that you think might make you a little bit happier tomorrow, what would it be? A different car, maybe a vacation in Hawaii, a boss that actually appreciates your work, or how about a spouse? Or how about a spouse that actually laughs at your jokes? How about a child or relief from your pain? Or someone who was suddenly taken away from you. Maybe they could come back in some sense. We all want different things. Some big, some small, some realistic, some unrealistic. We all want different things, but the pursuit is the same. We want to be happier. Now, one more thing. On the playground, if you ever talked about this before, maybe it was only me, but there was always a caveat that we would always say, do you know what it is? You can wish for three things, but there's one thing you can't wish for. More wishes. See, we already knew back then that three was not enough. 
You could get three miraculous wishes in your life. It still wouldn't be enough. They won't scratch the happiness itch. Not enough. But what if you weren't limited? And this leads to the second point, the pleasures. The pleasures. Solomon said he was going to pursue pleasures, and that's what he does. Notice in verse 1, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you. Speaking to his own heart with pleasure. Verse 2, I said of laughter. Verse 3, I searched with my heart. we got to understand that this is not theoretical. This is not sour grapes saying, well, I bet that doesn't even taste that good anyway. Solomon actually went all in. It wasn't theoretical. It was autobiographical. We need to remember that this is the, the most successful and wealthy and free king that ever ruled Israel. He's not a guy in his head in his ivory tower. He's a guy in his palace with slaves and servants and infinite money. You know, when I was uh, a kid also, I remember this movie came out called Blank Check. Uh, do you guys remember this movie at all? It was uh, probably Oscar winning. Um, but in the plot, there's this kid named Preston and he feels held back because he doesn't have enough. Right, in his house, there's not enough room. His brothers are all crowding his space. Uh, he goes to this birthday party at this like amusement park, but he doesn't have enough money to ride the rides. He never has enough. And then one day he's riding his bike down the street and he gets hit by a car. And he's okay. Okay, no, no harm, no foul. Um, but his bike is ruined. And the guy who hit him is in a hurry because he's an escaped convict. So he writes him a blank check for the bike. Now, do you know what a check is? I know it's, most people do, but I'm guessing some people don't. It's like a piece of paper where you can transfer money to other people. Okay, it's kind of a, it's kind of a vintage kind of thing. Um, so he gives him a blank check. There's no money uh, amount specified on it. So this kid, instead of writing like 200 bucks for the bike, he goes to the bank and he writes $1 million, okay, because he wants to be a millionaire, right? And normally people don't have a million dollars in their bank account. The check will bounce. They'll ask for ID, anything. But this guy is an escape convict. I guess he has a normal bank account. And because of uh, crime, I guess. He has a million dollars just sitting around. So he gets a million dollars. Preston gets a million dollars and he tells his heart, come now, I will test you. Enjoy yourself. And he goes wild. He buys a mansion. He buys a limo. Obviously, this is before inflation. He buys every toy he's ever wanted. He throws the most lavish birthday for himself. And even then, he runs out of money. But I remember watching that movie and all of my idolatrous desires were like, wow, what would I do if I had a million dollars? But here's what we have to appreciate here. Beyond just thinking, what would you wish for? What would you do if you had a blank check? We have to appreciate that Solomon actually had a blank check and he was good for all of it. He was good for every single transaction. There are very few people in human history who have been able to literally do whatever they want, whenever they want to do it. Solomon is one of them. He wasn't limited by anything. He pursued everything he could possibly think of to feel good, every pleasure. And we're going to go through it, go through it real quick. But he pursued laughter, just merriment, having a good time. He pursued drink, alcohol, substances that change the way that you feel, an ideal living situation. He pursued nature, possessions and stuff, music, sex, affirmation. The whole world chases these things or some of these things hoping to find happiness. Solomon actually chased all of these to the bitter end. Look at verse two. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? First, he looked to laughter. He looked to laughter and laughter can be a wonderful thing. Okay, understand that not all these things are bad. Laughter can be good. If you've ever laughed so hard that you cried in the end, you understand what I'm talking about. Laughter truly is a great medicine in a lot of ways. And yet, I don't know if you've ever noticed but even when you're having like a great time with your old buddies and you're all laughing, at the end of the laughter, there's kind of this awkward moment where you kind of don't know what to do. People sigh or look away or whatever. Laughter can't go on forever. And when it does, as Solomon says, it's insanity. Solomon wrote elsewhere, Proverbs 14, even in laughter, the heart may ache. And the cruel irony of laughter is that it's often the funniest people, the people who laugh the most. For example, comedians, those who seem the happiest, who hide the deepest depression. I was reading this quote by Robin Williams. And if you know the story of Robin Williams, he committed suicide from depression not that long ago. This is what he said. He said, I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy 
because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anyone else to feel like that. I mean, what a quote. I think at the time people thought, okay, this is some wise words of wisdom here. But after his suicide, that quote reads as a cry for help, very thinly veiled. Laughter can be good. But as Solomon found himself, it's not the key to returning to Eden. Even the the heartiest laughter leaves us wiping tears from our eyes. The preacher turns from laughter to drink. Verse 3, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He saw cheer in wine, in alcohol, in a substance that changes the state of your brain. He decided to use wisdom to paradoxically explore folly. I'm just going to let loose here. Of course, I'm going to observe what's going on here, but I'm just going to give myself into this altered state of consciousness. Let's get wasted. Let's let loose. And you know, I, I, uh, sometimes I just look at what some of my old friends from high school or even college are doing nowadays. And I saw, uh, this one guy I used to know in high school. For some reason, he was posting every single thing he was doing on this trip to Vegas. And it was honestly a little sad. He was by himself. And he's like, I'm at the Bellagio. I'm like eating this buffet. Okay, now I'm like drinking. It's like all these selfies. He just kept posting and posting and posting. And he's kind of having a good time in his mind. But when you're looking from the outside, everyone can see that he's alone. He's by himself. No one's interacting with his post. It was sad. And yet many people, they live for the weekends when they can party, but they can forget things. They live for that trip to Vegas where you can just let loose dance their problems away. Now, the Bible never condemns alcohol in of itself. Let's be clear. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 9 that wine can give us merry hearts. It says in Ecclesiastes 10 that wine can gladden life. However, alcohol is a double-edged sword, and anyone who has lived with an alcoholic knows this firsthand. In fact, I was reading someone say, what if uh, uh, commercials for, for beer were a little bit more uh, balanced, right? You could say, yes, you might have a fun time. Okay. You might laugh it up and smile. But then he said, imagine a halftime commercial at the Super Bowl that showed an alcoholics anonymous meeting or a wasted man hugging a toilet at 3 a.m. or a woman who got drunk for a stranger, but then was abandoned after use in a hotel or a scene with a drunken father raging and violent toward his wife and kids or an alcoholic losing his job. I mean, understand, okay. When Solomon is talking about alcohol, He's talking about the things that lower our inhibitions, the things that kind of make our problems disappear for a moment, but it's only for a moment. He's covering anything that makes the body feel good artificially. I searched for how to just cheer my body. That's what he says, my body. If I'm depressed, how can I make myself forget my troubles? If I'm anxious, here's some liquid courage. If I'm bored, what can get me amped for life? And obviously that doesn't lead to what he's looking for because he moves on. He says in verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Okay, so he doesn't just party. He actually had his own HGTV show. He built houses, plural. He planted vineyards. He's into the landscaping. This was an attempt at satisfying his heart with an ideal living environment, with aesthetics. If he saw a home that he liked the look of on Instagram, he would get to work on that remodel right away or he'd buy a new house or whatever it might be. He had people to clean his house. He had people to furnish his house. He had people to play music in his house. In terms of how he lived, everything was as good as can be. Verse 5, I made, my, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He actually brought nature to himself. I mean, some people, that's what they want, okay? They, they work in this corporate job and they hate it. They're under the fluorescent lights and it's killing them. They just can't wait for the weekend where they can go camping or go hiking, God forbid. He looked, I just, I'm not into hiking, okay? That's, uh, it's just my own personal failing. But he looked to nature. He looked to nature. He brought the forest and the trees and the lakes to himself. And you can see almost, if you're looking for it, a thinly veiled attempt to reconstruct Eden as it were, fruit trees, everything looks good, everything's natural, kind of a return to minimalism and simplicity. 
Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. When he speaks of slaves, he's speaking of possessions. Hey, don't get me wrong. Now, this is a red flag when it comes to the king of Israel, for sure. But the preacher never said that he was only going to do kosher things, so to speak. He's going to do everything that could feel good. And you know what feels good? When people serve you for free. I mean, these people are going to clean up after him. They're going to cook for him. They're going to play music for him. They're going to fan him when he's hot. He has animals. He has houses. He has all the stuff money can buy. He has luxury. He has comfort. And he still has even more money on top. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He has treasure. You know, sometimes you see like when uh, celebrities or rich people show off their houses and they have whole rooms for, for just clothes or whole rooms for just shoes or watches or whatever it might be. I mean, this is Solomon's life. Whatever you think might be uh, cool to have or you want to show off, he has them in his watch room. He has money. He has music. Verse 8, I got singers, both men and women. And then it says, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now, if you know anything about Solomon, he had many wives. He had many concubines. This was part of his undoing, and we'll probably open this up a little bit more as we get into Ecclesiastes. But here, basically what he's saying, beyond just a marriage relationship or or dating or whatever he's saying, uh, he's talking about something that's honestly pretty crass. Okay, now, I know that there's some kids here, but this is what the scripture actually says the word here for concubines is actually very difficult to translate. People have kind of tried to, you know, there's a lot of Hebrew scholarship written about this. But essentially, what he says here, instead of concubines, is he says breasts. Okay, he's talking about body parts. He's talking about people in terms of body parts. Do you kind of follow what's going on here? He said, basically, I just used whoever I wanted. You know, if I, wa- if I wanted to feel good, then... I would do whatever it takes to feel good. If I wanted someone, I had someone. You can almost hear kind of the the impersonal jadedness of how he approaches this, but that's what he did. He pursued sex as an experience as much as he wanted. And then lastly, he had affirmation, verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. He became great and not just objectively great, but subjectively. People said, wow, you're the best. You're the greatest of all time. You're the best king, the richest king, the smartest king, more than everyone else. And if you know great people in life, if you read their biographies or watch like the Netflix documentaries, you know that this is a big thing to them. Michael Jordan, he's so rich. So many people love him. He was the best athlete. He has like a family now. And yet he's so threatened by any younger basketball player that people say might be better than him in the end because he needs to be the greatest. Solomon had that though undisputed. He was the greatest. So he had laughter, drink, an ideal living situation, nature, stuff, music, sex, affirmation. I mean, that about covers everything that people chase after in this world. And maybe some of us say, no, my life is not about these things. I'm all about my work. We'll talk about that next week. I'm all about my kids. And I think that that's good. I mean, hopefully you're not totally living a hedonistic lifestyle, but even thinking about what do we want for our kids? Is it just some of this stuff. I want them to have a nice house. I want them to be very successful. I want them to be happy and feel good. See, so often we conflate the pursuit of happiness with the pursuit of pleasure. We think if it feels good, it must be good. If it is good, then it must feel good. Solomon tried every pleasure under the sun. And remember what he said at the outset. He said, behold, it was all vanity. You know, I remember, so I moved to Texas about eight years ago. It's been a little while now, so I feel like I've adjusted to a certain extent. I mean, maybe I'll never fully be accepted, but it's okay. So I came from California. I had to just admit that, get that off my chest. Uh, but when I first moved here, I remember everything was as they said. Everything's bigger in Texas, from the parking spaces to the houses to the roads. And I remember thinking when we first moved into our house, this house is humongous. It's too big for us. It's bigger than my childhood home by far. Uh, I could never have afforded anything even close to this. I could probably afford like half a tent in California. But now it's been a few years. 
And I look at our kitchen and I'm like, you know, it could be a little bigger. You know, we could use a little bit more room. I remember, you know, moving in and thinking this house is so big. I'll never want anything more. Just a few years later, I'm already thinking about, you know, there's a few things that could really spice things up over here, how things change. Because the truth is the bubble always bursts and it's in everything. You feel bad one day, so you do retail therapy. You feel good for a moment, right? You bought that new shirt and you wear it every day or whatever it might be. But after a couple of weeks, that gets old. It doesn't hold you over for the rest of your life. Some people, they get addicted to certain things. Uh, some people, they indulge in the darker side of sex. You get hooked on pornography. And you, you listen to people who are addicted and they'll say that first time, they felt this dopamine rush that they had never experienced before. But then as time went on and they struggled to quit, they needed more and more. They needed to see more and more just to get back to baseline. Or maybe in a more innocent way, you heard a song on the radio or on Spotify or something, or someone introduced you to an album and you, you love those songs. You, you heard a song and you just love that feeling it moved you. So then you put it on repeat and you kept playing it. And every time you liked it a little bit less. You can never recapture that feeling. Again, houses get old. Like I said, stuff gets old. People even get old. They talk about the honeymoon phase of a relationship. These things are not happiness, not truly. That's what Solomon says. They're hevel. They're a vapor. For one fleeting moment, you think you might have stumbled upon happiness. You chase it and you think you have your hand upon it. And then you realize that all you have in your hand is more wind. Everything is hevel. I mean, have you ever been disillusioned by something? Have you ever tried to find happiness in something only to be more miserable in the end? I think all of us have in small ways, but what we hold on to is this hope that maybe the next thing could be different. Can I ask you a question? What's the next thing you're looking for? Or looking to, rather? What's that thing that you're hoping right now is going to transform your life in small ways or big? What's in your Amazon shopping cart? What's the thing that you daydream about? If you look at your uh, For You page or whatever on Instagram, what is on that page? What are the things that you like to look at because it looks good to you? Let's go to the last point, the profit, which is about the real purpose of pleasure. Lillian was alone after Keith, like I said. Uh, things with Jimmy didn't pan out either. So she was alone and she made do. Uh, she worked. She tried to move on. Uh, but after a long time of this, she was just walking around one day and she heard someone call out her name, Lillian. And she turned to look and she didn't recognize this guy at all. It had been months, years even. But he said, hey, it's me. It's me, Jimmy. It's Jimmy. And they started talking and they, long story short, they fell in love and they got married, and Jimmy, he was not in a good place, okay? He was older now. He was not cool anymore. He had no stuff, really, but they got married. And Lillian says that one time, right after they got married, they went camping, and he wanted to sleep under the stars. That's what he said, under the sky. So they go camping, and she said it was terrible. They're, like, walking out into the wilderness, and they set up this tent, and it's, like, really cold but also damp. And she's, like, laying on the ground, and her spine is being destroyed by the ground that Jimmy chose to lay the tent on and she can't sleep. It's 3 a.m. in the morning and she thinks to herself, man, I'm 41. It's three in the morning. I'm laying in a field. And yet she said to herself, and this is a quote, she said, you know what? Good things are going to happen. I'm ready for them now. I wasn't before. I am now. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves. My sleeves are fairly twitching to be rolled for the good things. There was this expectation that she had that maybe things were going to be different. Now hold that thought, verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for my reward for all my toil. Whatever his eyes desired, he went for. He even found pleasure in his work. Again, we'll talk about that next week. And yet verse 11, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. What is the profit? Long story short, it's nothing. There's no profit. 
It's when he considered all that he had done, when he stood on the balcony of his mansion and he had the servant fanning him from behind and he had the singers, both male and female, singing for him. When he had his wives uh, waiting for him to hang out, when he had the best food, when he realized he was greater than everyone who had come before him, what did he feel? He felt completely empty inside. You know, it was said of Alexander the Great, after he conquered everything he could conquer, that he fell down and he wept for he had nothing left to take over. I think the quote was, no other worlds were left to be conquered. In a cruel twist of irony, this is what Solomon feels. In pursuing everything that feels good, he ended up feeling even worse than before. Now, what do you think? What do you think? I mean, if you just have to objectively evaluate Solomon, right? You're like, okay, I've seen that he did this. What's your takeaway from that? How do you feel about it? Are you reconsidering things? Do you think maybe you're the exception that you're just a little bit more, I don't know, you just have lower standards than Solomon maybe? Do you feel like, well, okay, maybe I will feel empty with a mansion, but I'd rather feel empty in a mansion than in my little shack that I call my home. One author says this, if we cannot feel what the preacher feels, it may be because we have given ourselves wholesale to the repertoire of diversions that distract us from addressing ultimate questions about our mortality. In our day, we are submerged beneath an abundance of trivia in our fully wired, always connected, completely digitized world of social media and limitless sources of entertainment. The preacher would not be negative about any of these things in themselves. He would simply ask us if we can cope with looking death in the eye or whether we are trying to live in bubbles we think will never burst. Basically, what he's saying is if you can't feel what the preacher's saying here, maybe it's because you just don't want to ask the hard questions about life. Like, does my life actually matter? Am I doing things that are worthwhile? Is there meaning and purpose to my pursuits? And in kind of a cruel irony again, for a lot of us, we don't want to ask these questions. So what do we do? We dive headfirst into more distractions and pleasures. Is looking at my phone five hours a day good for me? I'm just going to look at my phone. And I do that myself. Ecclesiastes has been very challenging for me because I realize how much I just don't want to think about these things personally. Can we picture Solomon for a moment? Solomon here is an old man, a husk of a, of a king. He had everything we think that human beings want that we do want. Everything we think that will make us happy, and yet he's so happy, he finds himself despising his own existence. In fact, if you skip ahead a little bit to verse 18, or excuse me, verse 17 in chapter 2, he actually says that he despises his own existence. He says, so I hated life. I hated life. I hated everything about my life. Pleasure, good and bad, is a vicious feedback loop. We try to distract ourselves from the life that we hate. We try to feel better, but we feel worse. So what do we do? We try to feel better again. So what is the solution here? What is the solution? And then, We'll bring this to a close. Well, I knew, I know, uh, I knew two pastors back in the day, two pastors that worked at the same church. These are real pastors. This is not a, like a fable or something. Two pastors, and they had really different personalities, really different approaches to life, actually. So one of them, he was a hobbyist. That's kind of who he was. He had a lot of hobbies. He was really good at music and he loved to listen to music. He loved to sing, stuff like that. Uh, he was really good at cooking and he would cook like these, this like, really good food. He would make like these steaks and stuff like that. He just loved to do stuff. You know, he had a lot of zest for life, you could say. The other pastor, he was a guy who was very serious about things. He's like, you know what? Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself and live for, you know, higher things. So he really tried to not have fun. And he kind of felt like a lot of things were frivolous in life. Like, why are you cooking when you could be fasting? Right? Why are you watching TV when you could be reading the Bible? And there was kind of this tension between them. Uh, they worked together. They were pretty much on the same page, but they were so different. One of them felt like the other was too worldly, pursuing vanity, kind of. The other one felt like his coworker needed to lighten up a bit and recognize that joy is a thing that God wants us to have. Now, who was right? 
who is right. C.S. Lewis famously addresses this issue in The Weight of Glory. He said, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it's not unfettered, pure unfettered pleasure in all the pleasurable things you could think of that is the way to happiness. Solomon blows that up. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that happiness in of itself is something that is worthless or not important. Solomon doesn't say that all these things he pursued were evil, though some of them were, but not all of them. He just says that they are hevel, that they are not gain. They don't satisfy. So what is the solution? It's in John chapter 4. Go to John 4. John chapter 4. What is the solution? Who is right? Which way do we go? How do we deal with this? We were made for what is good. We were made to find joy and happiness. We were made for Eden, in other words, but we can't get back there. We can't recreate it. We can't artificially make ourselves feel that way. So what do we do? Go to John chapter 4. This is a very famous story. We go from one preacher to the preacher who is greater than Solomon. Look at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She thinks it's some kind of new energy drink or something. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, pointing at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And they go on. And they go on to talk about worship and how the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And then the woman says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, obviously, there's a lot in this story. It's one of the most famous stories of Jesus. But notice verse 10. He says, if you knew what? If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift, this woman was pursuing happiness as we all are, but she was looking for it in all the wrong places, to put it mildly. She was looking for it in relationships, in marriages, in men. Five husbands, and the one she had now was not her husband anymore. Do you think that she was happy Do you think that she was happy? Do you think by this point, the seventh husband, that was the key? Seventh time is the charm? Notice Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I think the next guy will work out. Have you heard of online dating? He doesn't say, maybe you should try being a strong, independent woman. Who needs marriage? You just need to work on yourself. He doesn't say, have you tried Hamlet cigars? He says, if you knew who I was, then you would ask. And I don't want to give too much away here because Ecclesiastes is going to develop this idea as it goes along. But listen to what Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes 2. You don't have to turn there, just listen. He says, There is nothing better for a person 
than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? What he's saying is, enjoyment is actually a gift that God gives. See, Ecclesiastes is not a book about meaninglessness. It's a book about meaning. It's not a book about joylessness. It's a book about real joy. But first, what Solomon has to do, what the preacher wants to do, is he wants to blow up any notion in our minds that if we pursue pure, unfettered pleasure, that we could somehow get to happiness apart from God. It's impossible. The truth is, enjoyment is not gain at all, but enjoyment is a gift that God gives. And the enjoyable things in this world are meant to point us to the giver of all good things. And here's the crazy part. God doesn't just give us enjoyable things. He gives us the ability to enjoy anything. It's a total paradigm shift. We're looking for things that will make us feel better. But what God gives us is the ability to look to anything and rejoice. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Romans 8, God works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Paul said that he was always sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. It's possible, even east of Eden. That's the gift that God gives. We'll close here. Now, I'm going to close the loop on Lillian because you might have had some questions when I was talking about how she was kind of finding happiness in this adulterous marriage Lillian was feeling good about life. She had married Jimmy, and she had kind of accepted that she wasn't going to find happiness in another person, right? Jimmy was not that great either, but she was going to be content with it. That's what she decided in her heart. She had changed. She knew that her circumstances weren't great, but she was going to try to make the best of it. And you might think, okay, wait a minute. What are you saying? Okay, what are you saying? But why are you using this story? Are you saying that you can just be happy if you flip a switch in your mind? Is is this just self-help? Is that what... We're talking about here, uh, you just got to shift your perspective, look on the bright side. That's not what I'm saying. That's almost it, but that's not quite it. The truth is you do need to change inside. But even if you change inside, you can't do it without God. Because after Lillian had this epiphany at 3 a.m., they went home. Jimmy suddenly and tragically passed away. And it was so sudden and so tragic, you almost have to laugh. Like, how could this happen? She finally felt like she found happiness. And right away, her source of happiness is taken away. But that's how life is. And the truth is, and Solomon saw this so clearly, every single person is going to die. And death is the elephant in the room that robs every pleasure of its pleasure. Hevel is about how things dissipate. Even human beings are a mist here today and gone tomorrow. We do need to change our perspective. We need to accept that our circumstances are never going to give us happiness. We need to accept that we need to find a different way that we need to change, but it's not self-help. It's not just about being positive for the few short vain years of your life. That's not what Ecclesiastes is saying. He doesn't say start a practice of gratitude, write down three things you're thankful for, become a minimalist. Instead, the preacher points us to the only one who can truly help us. He points us to our creator who made all things beautiful in their time. He points to the creator that we read about later who came into this world as one of us, as a man of sorrows who had nowhere to lay his head. He had no home. He had no palace, no mansion. He left paradise to be born into our fallen world under the sun. He had no servants. He became a servant. He had little money. He never married. And then he died. He stepped into the fate of all mankind, the way of the whole world, the thing that makes all things hevel in the end. But what does the scripture say? He rose again. There is new life. And he calls us now to die too, to die to ourselves, but not in vain. He calls us to die to ourselves so that we can truly live, to lose our lives and all the vain things that we place our hope in and to step into what he calls true life, to recognize that everything in this life is actually a gift because we are a vapor. And yet God blesses us with so many things. He wants us to receive by faith that if we are right with God, then God is working all things for our good. That the things in our life, everything's good. 
That's the difference. When you know God, see, Eden wasn't Eden because of the trees, okay? Eden was Eden because God was there. And when we're right with God again, then everything in our perspective does change. Everything is tov. Do you see what I'm saying? We'll talk about this more later. Nothing can make you happy without him. Not ultimately, not in the end, but with him, we can be happy with anything. Now, we'll talk more about this in the book, but for now, I have one thing for you to do. If you find yourself searching for something, if you're looking for happiness, if you're trying to find something that you just don't have, if you want to escape, here's what I have for you. This is your application. Just ask. If you know the person who is speaking to you, and if you know what he can give, just ask. Just ask that he will give you what you truly seek. Just ask that he will give you what only he can give. Will you pray with me?